Let's pray one more time and we shall begin. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we sanctify this time, Lord, in your name. And we ask you to help us now as we consider your word, as we think about your truth, and as we uh, think upon uh, the kingdom of God as uh, we see here even in the temptation, Lord, that Jesus was ordered towards the kingdom, that he was heading to the kingdom of God, and he would not be deterred, not even at the temptation of the tempter himself. And help us, Lord, to uh, understand that Jesus, what he did, he did for us. That his temptation, uh, in a sense, is our temptation. And the only difference is that although we would fall for certain, he certainly did not fall. And he did not yield, even for a moment, Lord, to the schemes of the devil. And so help us to put our hope and trust in him. And uh, to see that uh, what we need is uh, His righteousness, His work, and His merit. Lord, we're grateful for Jesus. Lord, thank You that we have this wonderful uh, um, mediator, uh, that we have this impeccable representative, that we have as our federal head of the new covenant, that we have the second and the last Adam, and that on the basis of His obedience and the basis of His successful uh, uh, righteousness and obedience to you, Father, that we don't have to live every day as if we are Adam in the garden all over again, because that has been decided. And uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to see how all of this uh, applies so uh, practically to our lives and uh, the, the liberation that we experience because of his work and because of the work of the Spirit now operating in our heart. So thank you, Father, for the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and the fact that there's no condemnation in him. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> certainly happy to be home. For those of you that don't know or don't remember, uh, I went to a conference this week uh, with uh, Joseph Urban, and uh, we attended a conference in Wimberley, Texas. How many of you guys know where that's at? Wimberley, Texas. You know where the, How do you know where that's at? Yeah, it's just south of Austin. It's a tremendous little town. It's a perfect place for uh, church retreat and, and you know things like that. Uh, I have so much to say about the conference there. Uh, it was taught by uh, Lane Tipton, Dr. Lane Tipton, who is the professor of Westminster Seminary's uh, uh, systematic theology at Westminster. He taught 12 lectures, 30-minute lectures on covenant theology, and uh, what I did not know about this conference is that it was going to be uh, recorded, videotaped. Uh, they had a whole camera, cr- camera crew, lighting, I mean, the whole thing. I, I, didn't, I wasn't ready to walk into that, but that's what it was. And it was really good. Uh, man, hats off to Lane Tipton. Uh, he, he had about three, in 12 lectures, he had about only about three moments, little hiccups where he had to re- retape something. Other than that, he was flawless. Uh, that's hard to do, uh, but he did it in kind of like an R.C. Sproul type style of presentation. Uh, guess how many people were at this conference? Westminster Seminary's one of his finest, you know, scholars, uh, professor of systematic theology. You know, how many people were at this conference? Two hundred. Can I get? Can I get twenty? Can I get? Can I get a seventy? Right. How many? Yeah. So there were about forty people there. And uh, Joseph and I were, Joseph and I were, uh, I think we were the only Baptists in the house. <laughs> but uh, we had really, really great fellowship with Dr. Tipton. 
And I'm now on texting terms with Dr. Tipton because of our time of fellowship together. I'm very proud of that, by the way. So this is the kind of stuff I get excited about, okay? So uh, uh, he, he filled in some, some uh, gray areas for me in my theology, my understanding of quite a few things. Uh, uh, not surprisingly, uh, Lane Tipton is uniquely qualified to understand Van Til which is what we're doing in our apologetics group. And so I had detailed questions for him about Van Til's uh, apologetic methodology, and he answered them as no one else probably in the universe could have answered those questions for me. Those questions, I had to have him repeat one answer probably about three or four times because I really didn't understand what he was saying. And so uh, if I didn't understand what he was saying, <laughs> you know, I was just like, man, elaborate. And it just rolls off this guy. This dude is a... Uh, this guy's gifted. The Lord is really gifted, uh, Lane Tipton. That guy's a total genius, and uh, and 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 we were really edified. You know, we weren't a bunch of crusty reformed people at a ranch. You know, uh, uh, in one of his teachings, <laughs> in one of his teachings, you know, he's cold-hearted Calvinist. You know, in one of his teachings, actually, uh, it was so glorious what he was teaching. Uh, he got emotional during the teaching, and uh, nobody expected that. Yeah, but it was just great. You know, it's just like. Uh, it's just really uh, trying to explain to you that I had just a really good time and uh, certainly worth every uh, penny and uh, worth the time for us to go there. But, uh, uh, well, uh, what he taught, not surprisingly, which I had no idea what he was going to teach, uh, but what he taught, not surprisingly, coincides with what we're teaching. He spent quite a bit of time, guess where? Luke chapter 4, <laughs> right where we're at. And so it's like, oh, yes. You know, and uh, and uh, let me tell you, I guess just to kind of encourage myself and to encourage you, a lot of the stuff that I'm teaching you guys here, brothers and sisters, I'm not getting it from anybody else. You know, I'm I'm compiling it as I go, and I you know I get it a little bit of client, a little bit of Voss, a little bit of GKB and commentaries and things like that. And I was so uh, encouraged because there was so much confirmation to some of the things I've been teaching and and and. and uh, I said, hey, man, I, I taught it like this. What do you think? He's like, oh, that's that's good. That's right. You're on the right track. And I was like, yes. You know, I was just like, anyway, so this is what I get excited about. But uh, it was a good time. Um, but we have a lot of work to do today, so we better jump into it. Luke chapter 4, as you can see, that's kind of where we're going now. And if you remember from our last uh, time that we got together, uh, I talked about the temptation of Christ uh, along three different waves of temptation, right? So verses 1 through 4 is the first wave. We're looking today at the second wave of temptation, which is verses 5 to 8. And then the last wave is verses 9 to, uh, what is it there, uh, 13? And But I really took it all the way to verse 14, because verse 14 forms what... Uh, uh, this is kind of where I write terms that you may not know. I don't know if you even care, but... Uh, how did I go from... Like, oh, there it is. Um, I kind of like the black one better, but uh, it forms what uh, people call an inclusio, okay, which is probably some Latin term that just basically means that a text of Scripture is so structured that it begins and ends with the same idea, the same theme. So what does verse 1 of Luke begin with? Well, the Spirit, right? And the Spirit leads the Messiah, uh, right? And we talked quite a bit about that. And how does the pericope end? How does the story end? How does the paragraph end? Verse 14, well, after it's all done, what happens? He returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So we go verse 1, Spirit, verse 14, Spirit. That is not a coincidence. That is by design. 
That is so that we understand that when uh, Jesus, as the second and last Adam, obeys and overcomes temptation, he, in a sense, arrives as a, at a higher escalated level of the Spirit. And that's what we think should have happened to Adam. Had he obeyed, the Spirit would have progressed him beyond temptation, beyond conflict with the serpent, uh, and he would have ushered him into a higher plane of the Spirit uh, himself. And so we'll, we'll get to some of that stuff. But, but notice what's going on here in this temptation. Let's, be, let's just read verses 5 down to verse 8, okay? Here we go. Uh, it says, And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil was... Uh, The devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so what is at stake at this wave of temptation is what I entitled kingdoms. You could say kingdoms and its glory. Right, which is really tremendous because if you think about what was at stake in the Edemic temptation was nothing less than the kingdom of God or the kingdom glory. And that's what uh, Adam himself would have ultimately advanced to. But we don't want to go too quickly here. Uh, if you look at verse 5, it says, And he led him up. Now what does it say, led him up to where? <laughs> does it tell you, right? Uh, but Matthew tells you. Matthew says in Matthew chapter parallel, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 4, let me write that right, verse 8, Matthew 4, 8, says, where did he lead him up to? He led him up a very high mountain. And so this brings us to uh, what I have coined uh, biblical, okay, let's just say biblical is here, okay, Uh, biblical orology. I'm trying to get Joseph Urban to adopt that phrase. He's like, there's biblical orology? What is that? I said, I don't know. I just invented it, but I like it. It sounds good. Because orology is the study of mountains, right? Usually it's in the realm of the scientific. Uh, Orologists are studying rocks and elevation and dirt and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Uh, The topography of mountains or mountain ranges and things like that. But when you think about biblical orology, what this is really, in essence, is theology. It's a theology of mountains, Okay, And the reason why this is so important is because what is going on here is that Satan is taking Jesus up a high mountain. Is that significant or what? Yes. Now, how do we know there's a theology of mountains in the Bible? How do we know there's a theology of mountains in the Bible? Somebody, somebody tell me some mountain idea that tells us that there's theology associated with mountains. Anybody? Anyone? Mount Sinai, okay. What else? What is it? Zion. Mount of Olives. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anything else? Anything significant happened at a mountain? What is it? Go ahead. Don't be shy. <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. That's right. That's right. Anything else? Abraham offered Isaac. Mount Moriah. Anything else? Correct. Absolutely. We were in Israel. We we went on Mount Carmel. It was marvelous. Um, That's right. So you have all this, you know, uh, Jesus took his disciples, Matthew chapter 17. They took him up to the mountain and there he transfigured before them. 
It's like always, it seems like the Bible is always connecting us somehow to the theology of a mountain for some reason, right? Isaiah chapter 2, check this out. Isaiah chapter 2, uh, verse 2 and following. The entire plan of redemption is connected to the theme of a mountain. How do I know that for certain? Well, because it says there that one day, right, the mountain of God will overshadow, will destroy, will overcome all other mountains of the earth. What is that talking about? Like what? So what are we supposed to envision, right? Like one mountain rising above the other mountains? Yeah, kind of. Like what's the highest mountain on earth? Anybody know? Thank you because I did not. <laughs> so I wasn't sure. So, okay, Everest. Okay, so it's, it's almost like the Mount Everest of God, right, is going to one day uh, overpower all other mountains. So you can talk about this mountain or that mountain, but Everest, we know what that is. That's the one that, that's the supreme mountain, right? That's the big, that's the big one. And so same kind of imagery that the prophets use. Remember, the prophets uh, use a technical device called prophetic idiom. You guys remember what that was? Remember what that was, anybody? When the prophets talk about mountains or tabernacles or tents or clouds or when they talk about feasts or when they talk about food or when they talk about, uh, I don't know, all kinds of stuff that they they talk about. How about this, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, to, do, to give us some sort of heavenly depiction of some sort of heavenly glory. You know, Ezekiel presents the glory of God along the along the lines of this exaggerated chariot that's on fire, right? And has flowing metal, almost kind of like the Terminator. It's not a bad move. Uh, anyway, but you know what I mean? It's just like liquid metal, he says, was the appearance of. So he's using earthly sort of contemporary ideas that the people understood metaphorically, prophetically, to symbolize some sort of eternal, heavenly, celestial reality, uh, okay, or redemptive reality. And so that's something they do all the time, like the mountain of God. Yes, sir? I'm sure you did. Jared's always sending me these little obscure little verses, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so uh, biblical orology, you know, originates uh, from the very beginning. So turn to, where am I at? Turn here. The what now? Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I'm going to, that's what we're going to look at right now. Ezekiel chapter 28 here. Go there real quick. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, I guess we can begin in verse 12, okay? Verses 1 to 12, or verses 1 to 11, is actually kind of setting up the historical situation of what's going on here. But basically, it's like the pagan king of Tyre has gotten to a point, kind of like, you know, that the Bible a lot of times, you know, condemns kings because they're God's enemies and whatnot, king of Babylon, people like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, things like that, okay? The king of Assyria. Here it's the king of Tyre who has exalted himself as a cosmic power, but he's become evil, and he's turned on the people of God, and he's begun to engage in great blasphemous boasts. And so, uh, if you, maybe I should go there myself. Ezekiel, man, I tell you, I can't get out of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, but look at verse, uh, verse 2, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. 
Yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Wow, isn't that tremendous? So think about the blasphemous boast. So Tyre, the king of Tyre, like the king of Babylon, and like many of the wicked, evil kings in the Old Testament, uh, like the primitive king, leader of the ancient world, Nimrod, who came from the city of Shinar and built a big temple, built built, uh, what we call a big tower of Babel, he too was a wicked, evil, cosmic king, and his boast was, uh, was like the king of Tyre. How do we know that for certain? Because they wanted to reach into heaven <laughs> with, the, with the, the Tower of Babel. And so that shows their, their sort of divine, their, you know, their, uh, their aspirations for deification. Okay, so in the same way, you know, the king of Tyre serves the purpose of what God wants to do here. But here's the connection, okay? The connection that we're trying to make here is that just as God, or excuse me, uh, just as Jesus was led up a high mountain by Satan, that high mountain becomes the place of, of, of intimate religious fellowship with God. That is the place of highest glory, as it were. And here again, prophetic idiom being used to, to, to convey something very strange to us. Look, look now, verse 11. Okay, it says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, it's almost like the lamentation that you hear in Revelation chapter 17 to 18 over Babylon, right? Oh, Babylon, Babylon has fallen. And then proceeds this lamentation of, you know, no longer, you know, no more music, no more food, no more clothing, no more trade, nothing. It is over. It's fallen, right? All this stuff. So in the same way, these lamentations a lot of times are spoken over kings and kingdoms to announce an oracle of judgment. That's the point. Uh, And this is what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is where it gets interesting, guys. Because if you think about the king of Tyre, what I'm about to read doesn't make any sense. Okay, concentrate. It doesn't make any sense. You were in Eden. When was Tyre in Eden? Hey, even by the time this is written to, to the king of Tyre, does anybody know where Eden is? <laughs> Nobody knows where Eden is. You know why? Because it was a flood. <laughs> and Noah's flood so rearranged the topography of the world that we don't know where anything was prior to Noah. You see what I'm saying? We don't know where Eden is. And people speculate, you know, National Geographic, you know, has its speculations and things like that, which are absurd. But one thing is for certain is that now Eden, not my daughter, but the garden. Yeah, see, see. Uh, now, Eden <laughs> becomes sort of a, a, a theological concept. <laughs> and what's going on in Eden? Oh, here's a question I have for you guys. Who was in Eden? Okay, the serpent was in Eden, but who else? Adam. Yes, Adam and Eve, but let's stop with Adam. Okay, for a specific reason. Because he is the representative of mankind. And what does it say here? You were in Eden... The garden of God. Every precious stone was covering you. The ruby, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, lapis, uh, lazuli, the turquoise, emerald, gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets. Or if you look at your footnote, if you have a footnote in your Bible, mine speaks of uh, tambourines or drums and flutes or horns, okay, or something like that. Uh, So it could be either one. Uh, so the NSB is making a translation, uh, interpret, an interpretive translation there. What it's saying is the Hebrew word there is 
is uh, speaking about all these precious stones, and then the gold, the, the reason gold is there is to the, that all these stones were to be set in gold, setting in sockets of gold, okay? This is reminiscent, by the way, of the uh, priestly uh, garments that are mentioned there in uh, Exodus chapter 28. And in Exodus chapter 28, we get a description of the priestly garments, and the priest would have been so decked out, okay, yeah, don't laugh, yeah. Okay, that he had these priestly garments. He had the ephod, all these gones, stones that were in settings of gold. Okay, and so and so some would say, well, that's what he's talking about here in Ezekiel. He's kind of making. So if you're a Jew and you're aware of the high priest and his and his uh, and his priestly garments, you understand that those exact stones are used in the priest. Okay, and set in settings of gold. So, but is that really what is? Uh, what is really behind this? Well, no, because we have the allusion to Eden. So it's got to go further than the priesthood, further than uh, Exodus. It's got to go all the way back to the very beginning. Look at what it says here. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. See, again, the reference to creation. And so we're back in Eden. We're back in the imagery of Eden. You were the anointed cherub. Now, that's interesting, right? Because we, okay, Adam. So now Adam... It's almost communicated along the lines of a priest, right? And now he is being called the anointed cherub. What's a cherub? An angel, right? Some kind of, uh, uh, specifically in biblical parlance, when you talk about cherubs, you're talking about guardian angels. They are tasked with warrior-like power to guard something sacred. How do we know that for certain? Well, Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 3, I think it's verse 24. God stations a cherub in the garden with a flaming sword to guard the way of the garden. What, is it, what does the Bible says the flaming sword was doing? It was spinning in all directions. So in a sense, you had the warrior angel in the middle and the flaming sword was spinning all around. And it was guarding, in a sense, Eden that was there and so the imagery becomes like a firewall that is impenetrable. And if you want to go back to Eden, you have to pass through the firewall. What happens if you pass through the firewall of the sword? Yeah, you're dead. <laughs> you're not going to make it. Because what, what was God's concern? Lest he stretch forth his hand and eat of the tree of life. What's the implication? Um, Yeah, the implication is that if Adam reached out his hand, took the tree of life under the condition of the fall, he would have remained confirmed in that state, probably. Okay, that's probably the, the, because it's forbidden. He can't take it. He has no authority to take of the tree of life anymore. So the same imagery uh, as the flaming sword of the cherub, just to show you the guardian, is also found in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 5. There speaks of a firewall. Uh, that guards the people, kind of the same notion of protecting that that firewall, that the, the, the people of God, the covenant community, uh, in the same sort of fashion. I think it's this borrowing the same kind of imagery. Uh, but w- what what what's going on here? Look at verse fourteen. You were anointed cherub who covers. Of course, you know that he covers because we find out uh, in the building and the construction of the ark, for example, we find out that the uh, the cherub that covered the ark of the covenant. Right? It says they covered it. And so that's what they do. And it says, and you were, watch this now, 
You were on the holy mountain of God. Ah, so now we're back to biblical orology, uh, the mountain theology of the Bible, only this time mountain biblical orology is now connected to the concept of Eden. And so to be in Eden is tantamount to be on the mountain of God. You starting to see kind of like what Satan's doing? He's taking Jesus up a mountain. Okay, why is that significance? You're probably wondering, what is, what is this all about? What was the first wave of temptation? Where was Jesus? Where was he at in the first wave? As the Spirit led him? Now where is Jesus? Where is he going in verse 9? Whoa, what is Satan doing? Satan is, in a sense, trying to recreate the drama of Israel, right? Where the new Israel or the true Israel is tested in the wilderness. He's taken up to the mountain of covenant, right, with God. And then after being at Sinai, then what happens immediately after they're at Sinai for a while? uh, Then what's their next major move? They construct the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the mobile temple of God. You see? And once the, ta- once the temple is built, what happens to the tabernacle? It's gone. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. They get rid of the tabernacle because it's a temporary mobile tabernacle, right? It's just a tent. You don't need a tent when you, got a, <laughs> when you have, you know, uh, uh, a temple made out of stone. You know, beautiful stone and all that. So Satan is, in a sense, recapitulating the history of Israel, is signaling the fact that a new exodus, a new exodus is afoot, and that who Satan has before him is the true Israel, the new mediator, right? The, the second Adam. Now, consequently, if you care about covenant theology, for example, uh, this also supports the notion that what is going on if these connections are true, because what the connection is this so far, Adam, Israel, and Christ. And all of them, Adam, Israel, Christ, are cast sort of in the imagery of testing. The imagery of temptation. Adam fails, so he gets an F. Israel fails, so they get an F. Jesus, no, Jesus passes. No, 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 no. let's give him an A, not a P. You know, pass is like a postmodern thing. Like you pass. What? Well, what's your grade, man? So Jesus gets an A plus plus. Huh? <laughs> That's right. And so Jesus is the victor, Christus, that the Reformers talk about. He is the victor, you know, uh, uh, of this uh, ordeal, this uh, Antichrist ordeal that he has to undergo in the presence of the anti-Lord. And in the same way uh, that, uh, that Jesus uh, passed this temptation, in the same way, that's what's going on with Adam. Remember, guys, if you want to learn the Bible, you've got to learn how to go Adam, number one, Adam, oops, Adam, number two. 
You want to learn about Adam 1? Look at Adam 2. You want to learn about Adam 2? Look at Adam 1. What was at stake for Jesus in his ordeal as he passed the test was that he was going to gain the authority to the kingdom of God. He was going to gain access to the tree of life. And in gaining access to the tree of life, he would partake of the tree and then he would give it to his posterity, to his people, to his children. And what do you have? You have exactly that. Where do you have that? Revelation, right? Chapter 2, verse 7. Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, I believe it is. And 22, verse... Oh, I think it's 22. I don't know. Look it up. Uh, You have a repetitious thing with the tree of life, right? That we are being granted authority. You guys know all that. So what's going on here, I think, in Ezekiel... Ah! Can I erase this? You guys okay if I erase this? Okay. That's a mountain. Okay, don't get scared. Let's say this is a path up the mountain. I can't help but to think of like the Lord of the Rings and stuff. But anyway, uh, this is not Mount Doom, though. This is, let's just call this Mount Sinai or Mount Sion, okay? And uh, all of these dots right here, they're representative of verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. What is that about? Right? It's like you get so lost in this imagery. I imagine here we are. You know, it's let's say it's ten o'clock at night. Some of you guys go to bed at ten, maybe nine. You early birds. Okay, uh, I'm up maybe a little later than that. <clears throat> You're reading this and, you know, you're walking on a holy mountain of God. There's stones of fire. I don't get it. Anyway, good night. I don't know anything about these stones of fire, right? It's just way out of my league. It's just way, it's just enigmatic, mysterious language that I don't comprehend. When in reality, all it is is prophetic idiom. And what's going on here is that these stones represent the, the glory, the righteousness, the holiness, the Shekinah glory of God, right? And all these stones, so th- picture it. There's Adam, Adam one. He's in Eden and you have all these trees and all this stuff with fruit everywhere. And you've got rivers and it's all dazzling. And there's gold, gold here, gold here, gold here, right? Because Havilah is there. And the Bible says there's gold everywhere in Havilah. So instead of looking for like Eden, let's go look for Havilah. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's where the gold is at. You see what I'm saying? So you have all these stones that are mentioned in Eden, So these stones correspond to the stones that are now situated in the mountain of God. Why? Because what this is saying is that you were being brought into a celestial fellowship with God. Heaven is consequently cast in the same language of these brilliant stones. And um, yeah. What happens on the mountain of God? Anybody go up the mountain before? Moses, where did he go? How far up the mountain did he go? Uh, Moses went all the way to the top, right? Here's Moisha, right here. That's there. And then, uh, and then somebody was led halfway up, remember? Who was that? That was the elders that were with Moses. I think that's Exodus chapter 25. Somebody want to check that? And then at the bottom were the, was Israel. The covenant people. Do you see how there's levels here? Like the people down at the bottom, the elders were allowed halfway up. Only Moses was allowed to go all the way up to the mountain. 
And what happens is that Moses enters into the eternal, uh, how do I spell this? The eternal counsel of God. It says in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, that Satan led him up. And in Matthew chapter five, verse, 4, verse 8, it says he led him up a very high mountain. And, this, and the scene there is that Satan has taken this Adamic figure, and like Moses, the prophet, priest, and king of God's people, all the way up the mountain in order to engage in not holy counsel with Moses, not holy counsel with his servant, but with an unholy counsel. It's like this is where God discloses his secrets to his servants, right? And Moses is told, Moses, take the shoes off your feet. Is where you're standing is holy ground. See, this is the place of deliberation. This is the place where people are introduced into the secret counsel of the Lord. And that's why prophets in Jeremiah are said to be in the counsel of God, that they get the counsel of the Lord. The false prophets are those who do not have the counsel of God. And, and the Hebrew word, by the way, for counsel uh, can mean counsel as in a gathering, uh, a sort of a special gathering, or counsel in the sense of like counseling, right? And uh, the Hebrew word can be used either way, and it's used in both contexts. But, but isn't that remarkable? Uh, what, what is Satan doing? What Satan is saying is that I'm a better Lord. I have better counsel. I have a better covenant. I'm taking you up a superior mountain. I'm going to dazzle you with greater glory than Adam ever saw in the Eden, even though he was surrounded with precious gems. Everywhere in those gems were to be refracting the glory and holiness of God, the eternal glory of God, the celestial glory of God. I have something better to offer you. Uh, One more connection. Look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from where? Eden? Yeah, you might as well say Eden. What does the text say? From the mountain of God. <laughs> so, so, so where was Adam and Eve cast from? The garden. They were cast from Eden. And so what Ezekiel is helping us to understand is that wherever Eden was, there was a mountain in the center of it. And that, uh, and that to be in or on the mountain with God was mean that you were ascending up the hill of the Lord for perfect religious, spiritual communion with God. That's what was going on. That's what, that's what Adam had. Think of all that Adam forfeited. Any questions? Statements? Yeah, yeah, that's right, K-Dub. I think you're right. Uh, I think the way the imagery works is we go from Tyre to Adam, primary Adam, but also to Satan. And the reason why is because the language there is reminiscent of what you find, for example, in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. And there... In a sense, 
what's going on there is that uh, the king of Babylon is being described in the same sort of language, you see. And he says the same thing. I will be like God. And what, is, what does it say about Tyre? The king of Tyre, he says, I will be like God. Right? So there's a similarity going on there. Uh, by the way, all of this has to do with the doctrine of the Antichrist. Uh, you know, pay attention to that. So it's like, where does the Bible teach about the Antichrist? Well, you know, First Thessalonians, you know, Revelation, maybe Matthew chapter 24. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Antichrist theology begins way, way, way before that. Um, you see that in, like I said, you see that with um, Nimrod in Shinar with the Tower of Babel. And then after that, you get other uh, figures that are like that, right? You get um, Pharaoh, who's another Antichrist type. He's a cosmic power, the ruler of the world, the ruler of the most powerful global system at that time. Then you get a repetition of that with the king of Babylon. And to, at last, we go through a series of Antichrist figures who are just preludes. They're just shadows. They're forewarnings uh, of the forthcoming Antichrist, capital A who is yet to descend upon this world. I believe that. I don't believe it's just sort of imagery. You know, um, as, uh, as we think about all this, uh, we know what Adam was supposed to do. Here, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to two places, okay? Uh, 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 Genesis, you see, notice I have uh, Genesis chapter 2. You see I have here uh, the covenant of works up here. Okay, I'm going to erase some of this. Somebody want to take a picture of my artwork up here before I get rid <laughs> stellar, you know, work up here. It's a shame to have to erase it. Uh, okay, so what did I say? Genesis 2, 15 through 17. That's uh, historically what theologians call the covenant of works. Also, Numbers chapter 3, uh, and we'll get there in a second. But does somebody want to read that for us, please? Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Want to read that? Anybody? Juan, Juan, you want to read that? Are you there? Are you there? Are you there or no? Okay, go to, number, uh, uh, go to Numbers chapter 3, Juan. Keith, can you read chapter 2, verses 15 to 17? That's right. That's right. Uh, now we want to focus. Uh, we want to focus our attention on a Hebrew word here. The Hebrew word is shamar, which means to keep. Okay. Hebrew would look something like this. Okay. That would be. Uh, that would be the. Uh, that would be the Hebrew text. Shamar, probably like that. Anyway, shamar means to keep. I just, I love Hebrew and I wish I knew it better, but that's what shamar would be in the Hebrew text. And this is what the transliteration is and this is what it means, to keep. Now, why is that important? Because in Numbers, Juan, read for, uh, read for us uh, verse, uh, verse uh, uh, 7 through, 11, through 10. Chapter, Numbers 3, verse 7 through 10. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. <laughs> 
and you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses. No, that's it. That's good. That's, that's good. Uh, because verse 10 is critical. Notice what happens there. What is God telling the priests to do? These are the priests. And what they're, sa- what they're saying is, you need to guard the sanctuary. You need to guard. It's the same exact word, you guys. Same exact word used there and here. This lends itself to the fact that Adam was a priest king unto his God. Matter of fact, Adam was a prophet, priest, and king, just like Christ, right? How do we know he was a king? Well, because he was invested with the Spirit of God. Uh, he was endowed and anointed with the image of God, and he was commissioned to do what? To rule and to reign and to have dominion like a king. Consequently, the same language that's used of Adam in the image of God and in the commission is used of King Solomon, that he too should rule and have dominion and reign. Uh, same exact language. Uh, so that's kingly talk. Uh, and he was a priest. Why? Because we know he was to be a guardian of the temple sanctuary uh, that was in Eden. That that's what Eden was. Eden was, in a sense, the primitive sanctuary. See, what's going on, brothers and sisters, is this. And then what's going on here is the high heaven. So what's going on in the high heaven is that it is being projected down upon the earth. The earth and the visible heavens. Right? So what's happening here is that what the reality of the high heaven, okay, the sanctuary, the true dwelling place of God, is then being projected down upon the earth. How do we know that for certain? Because... The tabernacle, the temple, you guys, the river, the stones, the trees, the tree of life, all of it is found where in the Bible? In heaven. (laughs) Right? Revelation chapter 21 and 22. There's no question about it. You see? Matter of fact, uh, this was all seen by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 47 as he sees exactly what you find in Revelation chapter 22. You have the river of life streaming from the temple of God in a sense, like bubbling up from under the threshold of the temple, coming out into a living river. Well, the, the, the river represents what? Living water. And what, is, uh, what does Ezekiel say there in Ezekiel 47? It says, he walked, and the further he walked, it's like the water got to his ankles. He kept walking, the water got to his knees. He kept walking, the water got to his thighs. He says, and then I kept walking thousand thousand cubits later, and I couldn't touch the floor anymore. He said, I had to swim. What's Ezekiel seeing there with this river that's streaming out of the temple? Eternal life. He is being submersed in the life. Isn't that glorious, you guys? That heaven is depicted as a place where we will be immersed in life. Don't you feel sometimes in this world that you are immersed in death? 
right? It's all around us. It's encroaching. It's tangling. It's contaminating everything, right? Sickness, disease, dysfunction, sin, everything. It's all around us. We're just in the realm of death. And one day we will be in the realm of life. We will be in the heavenly reality that was for centuries and millennia projected onto the earthly realm. That's what's going on there. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We're just waiting the consummation of it, right? This is eternal life. That they would know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's that? Uh, uh, John chapter 17, verse 3, right? Consequently, the only place where Jesus Christ uses the word Jesus Christ. Um, what about back to Luke? I mean, we can spend all day. You guys know where I'm like, you guys know where I'm at. Um, I'm in all this because I don't think it gets any glor- more glorious than this. Oh, man, I got to tell you guys, I got a reason. I say I, I'm in this and like it doesn't get any more. I'm telling you guys the truth here. Well, hopefully you know that. But <laughs> Colossians chapter 3, that's going to come into view in a minute here. But I just want to return very quickly to the Lucan text. What happens here is we could say that the devil is presenting before Jesus. Verse, the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory. It's like the devil is giving him a counterfeit covenant of works. The only difference is is the covenant that the anti-Lord is presenting to Christ is deficient because he's saying you can arrive to this eschatological glory. You can arrive there with no obedience to obey, no righteousness You don't have to be righteous and no suffering. This will come into view uh, suffering. This will come into view specifically in verses nine, uh, excuse me, nine through 13, where the entire imagery that's being cast there is Satan telling Christ, you don't got to die. Don't die. Seems good. So did the fruit. It seemed good. What's wrong with it? Yeah, so Satan tells Jesus, you know, you don't got to die. You don't have to suffer. And you don't have to obey no covenant of works, which God requires from you exact personal and uh, 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 exact personal and exhaustive obedience. Forget that. Just do one little thing. Worship me. Worship before me, and it shall all be yours. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Do you think that is a coincidence? Absolutely not, brothers and sisters. It is not just that Jesus is thinking, oh, you know what? There's a verse over here that talks about not worshiping anybody but God, and that's a good verse to use because that's what, Jesus, that's what Satan's talking about. No, absolutely not. He is quoting a section that has to do, watch this now, with the Shema of Israel. What is the Shema of Israel? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. 
right? And, and, and in the Shema, the whole entire enterprise of the Shema is that you would be oriented towards the worship of God alone. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy, or maybe I can read it to you. But Deuteronomy, just extend the text. Jesus quotes verse 13. Look at the broader context. Down to verse 15. What is the con- See, this is what Satan did not want Jesus to know. This is what Jesus did not want. This is what Satan did not want Jesus to know or to quote. He wanted Jesus to contextualize, take the scriptures out of its context. Same thing he did in the garden. Has God really said, right? So undermine the word of God, under, undermine the Shema of Israel, undermine the context there that's going on. Because what's the context? He says, you know, uh, you shall fear the Lord your God only. Uh, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods and the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you even as it was against Adam. And he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And that happened, you know, in, in, a, in a series of events that happened with Israel. You know, they they went uh, they went uh, after foreign gods. Uh, they committed uh, spiritual harlotry and they were exiled. They were kicked out. And uh, they were they were expelled from the garden. And. Um, so that's what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I, unlike Israel, will remain to my God perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient. And here's the, here's the crucial connection. Ready, guys? The crucial connection is this. The reason I'm going to do this, the reason I'm not going to succumb to the anti-Lord, to the serpent, to Satan, is for the sake of God himself. It's not for reward. It's not for his gifts. It's not for anything that God offers me. It is for him alone. For the sake, of, like the, Shema, the, the passage says, for the sake of his name. That's why Jesus did it. The highest motive of all religious covenant life with God is that you do what you do because of God. And Jesus exhibited this perfect covenant faithfulness to god you see the depths now of the righteousness of the obedience that christ fulfilled and that adam was supposed to fulfill you should have did it adam because that's who god is not because of the things offered to you you get into the things that are offered to you, someone could offer you, and in your finite mind, you may somehow reason to the point where maybe the, 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 what's offered to you in your fallen wisdom, you may conclude is better. But nothing can be better than God himself. And that's what Adam should have done, and that's what... That's what uh, uh, let me finish it up because I'm totally out of time. And let me bring this whole thing to a close in two ways. This is a total fraudulent presentation by Satan. He doesn't have the power or the authority to make good on his claims. He cannot reward Christ with the kingdoms of the world. They're not for him. He has no authority. He is a dog demon on a leash. That's it. And therefore, Jesus understood 
that in terms of what is offered to him on a mountain, he goes back to a different mountain. Psalm chapter 2, God says, For me I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations and your inheritance, the very nations that Satan is trying to offer him, and the very, the very ends of the earth as your possession. Only God can give that. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, because Jesus obeyed perfectly in this way, in the context of a covenant of works, faithfully obeying where everybody else failed. He uniquely can ascend, if we go back to my little drawing earlier of the mountain, unlike Adam who should have ascended all the way up to perfect communion with God on the mountain of God, Jesus can do that. And here's the, here's the words that I want to I take it right out of Scripture. And I want to say, because Jesus and because of his perfect obedience, he lives out the words of the psalmist, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Notice the tantamount. They're tantamount to one another. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Jesus knew that upon perfect, uh, personal, and exact obedience to God, he would see the face of God. He would see the face of God. What Adam saw in a theophany, veiled, who knows the light, the shining, the splendor, the glory, the images he would have seen, who knows, to a limited degree, Jesus will see it in fullness. It's as if here is the glory of God. Here it is. Up here is God. Here's Adam. And he's looking at it. And he's saying, wow. And Jesus says, I'm coming in. All the way in to where the glory is. You see that? And that's where he wants to take us, brothers and sisters, I mean, why even go to church right now? <laughs> Let's just go worship. Let's go preach. 